Hello everyone and welcome to this Archives of Disease and Childhood Fetal Neonatal Edition podcast. Uh, it's my privilege to discuss two uh, papers that have appeared in the July edition of the journal, uh, a randomised crossover study of automated oxygen control for preterm infants receiving nasal high flow, and the associated editorial, Automated Oxygen Control in the Preterm Infant. Automation, yes, but we need intelligence. I have three of the authors from those two uh, papers uh, with us, and I will get them to uh, introduce themselves now. Hi, I'm Peter Dargaville. I'm a neonatologist at the Royal Hobart Hospital in Hobart, Australia. Hi, I'm Peter Reynolds. I'm a consultant neonatologist at St Peter's Hospital in Surrey in the UK. Hi, I'm Charles Rohr. I'm a neonatologist at the John Ratcliffe Hospital in Oxford in the UK. Uh, thank you all very much for, for joining us on this uh, podcast. Uh, it would be fair to say to people who regularly listen to the podcast, this is the second uh, themed podcast we've done on, on automated oxygen control in, in preterm infants, uh, and also the second uh, podcast we've undertaken involving nasal high flow. Uh, and this combines those two very hot topic areas. Um, so I, I thank you all for, for, for joining uh, us in the, on this uh, discussion of the, the randomized control trial and the associated editorial. Uh, and perhaps I'll start with the, the uh, authors of the, of the RCT. Um, this is obviously something that I know that is very close to, to, to both of your hearts. Um, but could you just provide a little bit of uh, background and w- what the inspiration perhaps for this study would be? Uh, and I believe Peter Reynolds, you're going to, to take that question. So we have done a small randomized controlled study of a new device uh, which has been produced by Vapotherm, um, which is designed to work uh, only with the Vapotherm Precision High Flow unit, which is something that as a unit we use uh, routinely for our non-invasive support. Um, So uh, we have uh, conducted a two-centre study working with Oxford, who also uh, used the same device uh, of a device which uh, was called the Intello 2, although I gather there's going to be a a name change. Um, And this was an order-randomised two-centre crossover trial uh, of the device, where the Intello 2 is a PID controller uh, which targets a single saturation. Uh, we determined uh, that that single saturation would be 93%, and that's something we'll come back to uh, in the discussion afterwards. Uh, And we enrolled uh, 30 uh, premature babies in total, have 24 hours spent uh, either as controls, um, and then 24 hours uh, spent uh, having their uh, oxygen intake regulated by the Intello 2 um, so the two centres um, recruited fairly similar uh, numbers of babies, and um, what we found, perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, was that babies who were in the automated arm of the trial uh, spent more time in the target range, which we set as 90 to 95 percent uh, along the lines of, of the boost studies. Um, and, uh, and they spent more time in that range uh, than if they were being manually controlled, um, although um, the nurses were fully aware that the machine was on or off and that they were recording their saturation, so we weren't able to blind 
that part of, of, of the study. Um, and the results also showed that uh, every baby uh, made an improvement in, in their target range. And we produced a, a graph very similar uh, to the uh, uh, paper by Gemma Plottier, which Peter Dargaville uh, was the last author on, um, showing this uh, phenomenon that uh, different babies seem to uh, show different amounts of improvement, uh, but we weren't able with our fairly small sample uh, to see any patterns as to why that would be. Uh, finally, in terms of hypoxia, uh, the uh, Vaportherm algorithm seemed to reduce hypoxic episodes uh, very nicely. Um, we uh, uh, quoted in the paper the data from Christian poets that a uh, saturation uh, lower than 70% uh, for more than 60 seconds uh, is associated with a poorer outcome. And the uh, Intello 2 unit uh, seemed to deal with those very nicely. There were uh, more episodes of hyperoxia with this particular algorithm, but they were very short, and we have no idea uh, whether these are clinically important or not, because this study did not uh, aim to determine the clinical effects of the control. It was a technical study. So obviously, in terms of weaknesses and things going forward in the study, um, the uh, clinical implications of using uh, these algorithms um, is something that we all are going to have to address. And of course, there are lots of different algorithms out there. Um, I think one of the strengths of the study was that we ran the oxygen uh, controller and the control arm for 24 hours at a time. Um, and that was overnight, obviously, and at weekends. So there was no uh, direct influence from uh, research staff. Uh, we, we didn't have research staff present. Uh, once the machines had been set up, uh, we left the nursing staff and the clinical staff to manage the babies as normal. So we felt that it was a, a reasonable representation of the truth, uh, albeit for a short period of time uh, with all the other limitations. Um, and I think it, uh, it's an interesting study. It showed a, a significant improvement and it sort of opens the door really to uh, um, uh, more long-term studies on this particular bit of equipment um, and adds to the jigsaw of information uh, that is available for all the other algorithms and all the other bits of equipment as well. That's a very great synopsis of the study and sort of the implications. And now that you mentioned the jigsaw, if I could come to uh, Professor Dargaville, could you just place this particular study in context as you understand it, what has gone before and what, what this will do in terms of our overall understanding of artificial intelligence in preterm automated oxygen control? Thanks, Jonathan. Um, congratulations to you, Peter, for doing uh, one of these studies. Um, it, it's a sensible design to do a crossover study. It's good that you've done a 24-hour period. As you say, that allows the device to be freely in the hands of the clinicians. Um, and good to have seen a result where there was more time in the target range. Uh, and as has been stated, um, a significant reduction in hypoxic episodes. Uh, which we all think uh, are linked to 
uh, deleterious effects on a baby and, and long-term impairments. Uh, although the data there uh, are quite limited. It's also been stated there are now a number of algorithms that have been embedded in uh, respiratory support devices. I think this brings the total up to six that would be available or potentially available in the European markets, uh, uh, at least. Um, so there are a lot of different algorithms there to choose from. And obviously they go along with different respiratory support devices that have other strengths and weaknesses as well. Uh, and so automated oxygen control is just one part of this jigsaw puzzle. Um, but one would have to think it's a very important part. And even if it only um, can reduce the, the workload for our staff in our neonatal intensive care units, if it were to do just that alone, uh, that should be helpful. But I, I guess we're all expecting that it can do more than just that and to, to be able to keep babies in the normoxic range more effectively and avoid the extremes of oxygenation. And this algorithm does appear to do that. Um, the algorithms, one has to say, have no algorithm has yet been tested head to head against another. Um, and so it's always hard to make pronouncements about how effective an algorithm is. Uh, in the total scheme of things. And in that sense, we can't put the jigsaw quite together just yet. Um, it may well be the case that some algorithms have advantage over others in, in differing clinical situations. Um, like many of the studies that have been done so far, this one involved babies that were not in that much oxygen, um, with the inclusion being 25% or more. Um, certainly, the algorithm appears quite responsive. And I, I guess one has to wonder sometimes maybe even over-responsive given that the finding of, of brief um, rises into the hyperoxic range after hypoxic events. And this is a common finding uh, for pretty much any of the algorithms that have been used, that they do tend to oscillate a little bit or have the potential to do so. Uh, so I guess that's, that would be my first comments on how this study fits in with with others, uh, certainly the amount of time in the target range is very high in, in uh, the automated control arm in this study, which is pleasing. Absolutely, and um, just to ask Peter Reynolds and Charles, are you able to comment on your algorithm? I, I think you used a, a abbreviation, uh, Peter Reynolds, uh, at the start of PID. Could you just describe just to the uninitiated amongst us what PID is or PID theory is uh, and uh, whether you're able to comment on your particular algorithm. Sure. Whilst I'm not an expert on PID controllers, I can give you my, my simple understanding. PID controllers are widely used in industry. There's nothing uh, unusual about them and things like cruise control on, on cars uh, are a good example of, of PID controllers. And essentially, uh, what they do is they um, continuously calculate an error value, uh, which is the difference between what you've set, what you want, uh, and what they're measuring. Uh, and then they um, set about trying to uh, correct that error uh, back to the set point. And the PID stands for proportional, uh, integral, and derivative. Um, so... Um, Proportional uh, sort of does what it says on the tin. So if there's a large error, uh, it will give a proportional response. And so a large error should generate a large response. 
Um, the integral function is complex mathematics, which looks to control the differences between the set point and what's being measured over time. And then the derivative bit uh, is the kind of predictive bit, which aims to try and control the future uh, errors by anticipating what's happened in the past. And, and I guess this is the bit that is slightly smarter. But you mentioned um, uh, artificial intelligence earlier, uh, Jonathan, and I think we have to be very careful. These machines uh, are not learning. Uh, they're not intelligent. They are just following algorithms. Uh, you can uh, uh, daisy chain uh, PID controllers together. Uh, you can do all sorts of clever things. You can tune them for stability um, and oscillations, as uh, Professor Dargaville has already mentioned, um, often arise in PID algorithms from uh, errors in tuning or responsiveness. So it is quite possible uh, that we saw uh, oscillations in the study, um, but we did uh, ask Vaporthurm uh, to in ensure that the, uh, the controller was, was tuned as much as possible. In terms of what is in the box, um, uh, we uh, published the information in the paper, which I know that uh, in an editorial, uh, Peter Dargaville uh, wanted more from us. But inevitably, there are commercial restrictions on this. Um, and uh, we uh, did ask Vapotherm to give us as much information as they could about their algorithm. Um, their algorithm is, is commercially restricted. Obviously, you know, Peter's algorithm is now in the Oxygeny SLE 6000. So all of these bits of uh, kit uh, have commercial value. Uh, and therefore, uh, I'm not able to give you any more information than we have published because I don't know it. Okay. Um, I thought that might be uh, part of your answer. Um, uh, Peter, Dargaville, do you have any thoughts on this not being artificial intelligence? Um, there's obviously some... Um, evidence of adaptability of the um, uh, technology, but I guess it, it's arguable what artificial intelligence is from my basic understanding, but do you have a more clear thought on that? Uh, yes, it's, a, it's an interesting um, question, Jonathan. We defined artificial intelligence in the editorial as the mimicry of human intelligence with computer systems, and as Peter Reynolds has, has uh, rightly pointed out, uh, the algorithms in any of the currently available devices are a long way away from artificial intelligence and as he said they don't really learn in the true sense of the word uh, or, or, or are able to mimic hum, human intelligence and the question of adaptation so there are a number of algorithms um, that are now uh, available in devices uh, including the the one that was used in in the, um, the vapor therm study that actually adapt to the severity of lung disease with the uh, finding uh, from previous studies, including one we did, that if a baby has more severe lung disease, then they'll need a, a, a bigger increase or decrease in FiO2 to bring the saturation from its current error point back into the target range. So that's called a, a reduced gain of the oxygenation system and hence then a more pronounced uh, FiO2 adjustment is required. Um, so uh, it's good that that particular uh, element has been incorporated into uh, Vapotherm algorithm and we think it's an important uh, thing that needs to be included in uh, automated control algorithms uh, wherever possible. 
but that's just one step and we, we think also it would be very good if we were able to develop algorithms that could actually uh, tune themselves in real time, uh, do a performance evaluation or analysis and then auto-tune uh, where there might be a change in the coefficients of the PID control system if, if PID were being used um, to more than just adapt but, but to learn and learn from the current um, response of the baby who the oxygenation system we're trying to control. I suppose the, the big question that, that people might have when listening to this conversation when we are getting bogged down in sort of the discussion of what artificial intelligence is and deep learning and mathematical algorithms is that what is next for this technology and the application on, in real life patients? And I'll go to you, Charles. Where do you see this going? What's, what's the next step? Well, there's been a number of studies which have looked at the ranges and the number of different algorithms that have been used with various different respiratory support systems. But what's next in terms of, of acquiring evidence and applying that evidence um, for the, the benefit of the, of the babies we have in our neonatal units? I can only um, reiterate what my colleagues have said and um, share their enthusiasm for automated oxygen control. Because if we follow the journey of a preterm infant from birth to discharge, we are very well aware of the relevance of oxygen toxicity. And um, as Peter, both Peters have uh, eloquently uh, elaborated, the um, long-term impact of hyperoxia as much as hypoxia are very, very relevant to brain development, eye development, um, oxygen toxicity is relevant to other organ systems which we haven't quite gotten enough information on, uh, but we, we can suspect that it's it's relevant to um, infant outcome. So, so what's next? Yes, um, well, to accompany the baby on its journey from birth, I guess, with the ongoing discussion on what concentration of oxygen to use from the word go to support babies in need of respiratory support from the first breath. Um, looking at the data that together with other studies have shown is that the algorithms which we already um, uh, make use of are much better in keeping babies in, uh, in, in a set oxygenation range um, than the human is. And I would envision that um, looking at data that comes out of groups from, from Leiden in the Netherlands, uh, Rotterdam in the Netherlands, and, and also um, from Peter Dargeville's group in, in Hobart, Australia, we will need automated oxygen control um, when we start putting any or applying any kind of oxygen to the baby um, in the delivery room with a face mask um, as soon as the baby's on high flow. Um, when the baby's on a ventilator. So I think there's, um, the scope is very clear. Whenever oxygen is used, I envision that it will soon be um, controlled by, by automated systems. What we as, as physicians and uh, caretakers need to, need to agree on is um, studies which inform us on the best uh, oxygen saturation targets at uh, different time points in a newborn infant's um, journey and life in particular of course the more immature uh, infants would probably be the most vulnerable ones and we need to look at large-scale studies collaborative studies um, like the boost trial um, and trials on safe oxygen delivery at birth and then get data which are uh, informative fantastic and peter reynolds do you have a, a comment to that 
I think there are an awful lot of challenges. Um, as I kind of alluded to first, the first thing that we did in this study was that we set a, um, a, a target SPO2 of 93%. Uh, and that was simply plumb in the middle of between 90 and 95. It, it was nothing more scientific than that. And what I think is really interesting, um, and obviously we have Ben Stenson, who is our uh, British oxygen guru, um, has just published a fascinating analysis in um, a, a rival publication. So in clinics in perinatology, just to give him a plug, he's done a, a reanalysis of some of the uh, Neoprom data. And um, at the risk of simplifying an awful lot of hard work, um, he's looked at uh, the outcomes for babies in the two groups and what uh, the most uh, time uh, each group spent at, at each saturation. And the bottom line is, is that for the higher saturation group, which was credited with avoiding necrotizing enterocolitis and mortality, the, uh, the most uh, common saturation was not 93%, but it was actually 94%, um, which may sound like a very small difference, um, but it, it's quite possible that um, we have not targeted the correct uh, saturation quite with this machine. And if we're going to be doing studies, it's uh, interesting, of course, Peter Dargaville is, a, is an absolute expert in this, and I, I agree completely that the, there is the need for technical studies to compare, compare efficiency of algorithms between each other, particularly in the hyperoxic ranges. And I've mentioned that the uh, vapor firm uh, algorithm had had more overshoots um, but actually just choosing what our saturation target should be is a difficult one and the neoprom data that that, that ben has uh, presented uh, really um, seems to indicate uh, the most uh, common saturation in in the better outcome group was 94 percent followed by 93 percent um, so it, it, i think that's the first challenge is knowing exactly what we should be aiming for, um, and, and that's a difficult one. Um, there are other challenges uh, that we need to think about um, in, in terms of um, whether what the most important thing is. Now, the nursing staff are always trained, of course, to try and keep a stable FiO2, um, and, and they try and avoid big jumps in FiO2, clearly at the expense of a more variable SpO2. And the machines do the reverse. They, they try and stabilize the SpO2 um, at the expense of having jumps in FiO2. And um, I don't think we particularly know um, what is the right thing to do. Uh, but we do know that the relationship between SpO2 and, and uh, the partial pressure of oxygen in the blood is important. Um, so there are all sorts of subtle things that we don't know the answer to, that we think we might. Um, and to finish off and say, what are we gonna do next? We're gonna start using the algorithm. Uh, so in the same way that the Oxygenie is now available to anyone who purchases a, an SLE 6000, uh, Vapotherm are bringing their commercial version of this uh, out, and it is, uh, as all these things are, imminent. And we are looking forward to uh, uh, implementing its use. We found that the nursing staff were hugely in favor of these controllers. Um, 
uh, which uh, was, was a very positive finding. Um, and, uh, and, and I think with the data that wider clinical use uh, generates, I'm hoping that this will allow for a big data set of normal oxygen variation in babies to be uh, collated uh, and to be analyzed to drive further improvements and refinements uh, in these algorithms. So I, I think we have to start somewhere. And whilst there might be a few variables along the way, it's probably better than what we do at the moment. And that's a pretty good starting point. Absolutely. And uh, uh, Professor Dargaville, um, I understand that there are randomized controlled trials ongoing, I think based in, in, in Germany. Could you just mention what, what they are and the effect that that might have on accumulating the evidence? Yes, thanks, Jonathan. Just before I do, I'll also add my thoughts on just a couple of things that need to be done, problems to be solved, and, and perhaps one of the, the practical ones that needs to be solved is uh, at the moment in many of the systems that are in use uh, using automated oxygen control means having two saturation probes on the baby, and that inevitably leads to confusion. They say the man who is wearing two watches doesn't know the time, and in the same way, the staff do get confused. Um, when there's a, a saturation feed into a respiratory support device and yet another one usually displaying a different number on the cardiorespiratory monitor. Uh, so that's a practical issue that needs to be solved. And as I mentioned before, I think it would be good to do, to do some benchtop studies uh, where the various different response elements of different algorithms are, are compared, even if just to allow people that, are, that have a certain device to know what to expect from it. But the, the bigger question and the one that Peter Reynolds has alluded to there is that, that we don't quite know whether uh, controlling SpO2 and have a want, having a wandering FiO2 is, is the right thing. It seems like it should be the right thing uh, by virtue of what we know about um, derangements in, F in SpO2 and their, and their bearing on outcome. Um, but there is a there is a study. It's the FiO2C study. Uh, Axel Franz and Christian Poets are the leading investigators. It's well funded from the um, German Ministry for Health, uh, and I'm understood to believe that there are now around a hundred recruits in the in the study. It's a really challenging one because it's randomising babies to receive automated control or to not receive it for the whole of their journey, um, and that that means or it implies that there are enough respiratory support devices deployed within the unit to allow for that to happen. Uh, the logistics um, are nightmarish, really, uh, in terms of how, how difficult it might be, but they're, they're forged on with it uh, and, uh, I believe, are continuing to look for centres to be involved. The sample size, I'm pretty sure, is 2,000 infants for that study. Wow, fantastic. Um... Well, thank you all um, very much for, for engaging in this, uh, this very interesting conversation. Um, but for people who are listening, they can uh, also get involved in the conversation through our, our various Twitter handles um, at uh, ADC underscore FN or my Twitter handle at Jonathan underscore Davis 3. And I understand um, that uh, both uh, Charles and Peter Reynolds have Twitter handles. Could you just shout out what they are? Uh, in, in, indeed, uh, after overcoming years of, uh, of cynicism, I am now at Neonatal Doc. Fantastic. And Charles, your handle? My handle is um, at CCROEHR 
And Professor Dargaville can always pass on questions. Uh, your email address is in the editorial and we can always pass on questions via the ADC site. So thank you all very much. Um, it, it's been a wonderful conversation and we look forward to uh, further discussions in the future. Thank you.